How many of you guys normally come to the 9 o'clock service? Can I see you? Yeah, I didn't go either. I heard it was great. I... <laughs> Just kidding. Well, it's good to be back. Um, this morning, we're beginning a series of messages that we're calling The Kingdom, and I want to take you back in time, kind of to start us out. And I want to go back to the 16th century. It was a time of the Protestant Reformation. It was a time of great conflict, of great hostility, quite frankly, between the Roman Catholic Church and these guys like John Calvin and Martin Luther and others who were leading this Reformation. And it was a time in which John Calvin found, it, found himself exiled from his native country of France, and he found kind of a safe haven in Geneva, Switzerland. And while he was there in Switzerland, he established a seminary, among many other things, and through that seminary, he then trained young men for the ministry, and he sent them out into this hostile territory, into these kind of Catholic-controlled countries, if you will, to plant these new Reformed churches. And just to give you an idea of how hostile a time period this was, the average life expectancy for a graduate from Calvin Seminary was six months. Think about that. You graduate, and then about six months, give or take, you're killed for your faith. You know, graduation days are normally a little happier than that, aren't they? I mean, you know, you go and you graduate. I don't know, many of you I'm sure have graduated from college, let's say, for example, and your parents are there, and they're like the most excited people there, by the way, because they just got like a $30,000 after-tax raise. Because you're done, and if you graduate and you have a job and you're completely off the payroll, they're going to Hawaii. It's true. They are so excited, they can hardly sleep. You're graduating. Your grandparents come, your aunt and uncle, I don't know, maybe come, your brother or sister come. They don't really care. Actually, they're a little threatened by the idea that you're going to move back into the house because they have finally, after four years, gotten everything constructed just the way they want it, and now you're going to screw it up. So, but they're in the picture. Just about every significant person in your family is there when you graduate, or sometimes even better, they send you a card with a really big check. It's a big day, and it's smiles, and it's pictures, and it's everyone goes out to dinner, and it's cards, and it's celebration, because it's graduation day, right? Unless it's Calvin Seminary, in which case you've got about six months to live. And I say about, because that was just the average. You know, there are documents that have survived from that time. We have, for example, forged passports that these people used as they went out in and out of Switzerland and in and out of these different countries trying to conceal their identity by falsifying their passports because the reality is they were hunted down like criminals and then killed. We have written accounts of what happened to some of these people as they went to plant these churches. There's an account, for example about a young woman who showed up at John Calvin's door in the middle of the night one night, and she's frantic, and she's screaming, and she's pounding on Calvin's door, and Calvin comes to the door, and he finds this woman dressed in her nightgown, covered in the blood of her husband, one of Calvin's graduates who had gone to France to plant a church, but who had come back to Switzerland only a day earlier on furlough and was followed over the border by some assassins who then killed him in his bed next to his wife who then showed up at Calvin's door. Now you hear that and you think, who would do that? 
I mean, who would go to that seminary? Seriously, would you go to that seminary if you really believe God was calling you to go out and to plant one of these Reformed churches and you're living in Geneva, you know, and it's 16th century and there's all this hostility, are you signing up for that program? If you're a parent here today, this is, I think, an even more difficult question. Would you sign your son up for that program? I mean, I'd rather go myself. What about your daughter? Would you marry your daughter off to one of these guys? Or if you were already married to one of these guys, would you let your husband get involved in this? I mean, this sounds a little bit like lunacy, doesn't it? Or does it? You know, I really think the bigger question is, what in the world did Calvin say to these people to get them to do this? Because it's not like he graduated one class, they all went off, they died within six months, and then everybody kind of got the memo, you know? And it was like, phew, man, enrollment's down. I wonder why. It's not what happened. Class after class, year after year. What is this vision, what is this thing that Calvin held before these people that was so big, so grand, so beautiful, so frankly overwhelming and compelling that they signed up or they signed up their son or they gave away their daughter or they gave away their husband and they just said, well, I guess that's it. I mean, we're willing to give all knowing six months, give or take. What is this thing that is more valuable than all of your time, all of it, than all of your money, all of it, than your career, than your reputation, than your plans, desires, hopes, dreams, relationships, health, son, daughter, or lives? And the answer is the kingdom. So then you go, well, what's that? I mean, if you're here today and you've not, you know, followed Jesus for very long and you're not real familiar with sort of Bible speak, uh, that doesn't mean anything to you, and that's quite understandable. It just, it's like, you know, right over your head, and all you're thinking is, A, I would not sign up for Calvin Seminary. B, neither would anyone in my family. So far, this sounds like craziness. But what about the rest of us? I mean, what of us, you know, what about those of us who are kind of familiar with the terms of art? I mean, what is, what is the kingdom? because that's what we're going to be talking about as we gather together on Sunday mornings and then as we plug into our community groups this semester. What's the kingdom of God? See, we're going to look together at the kingdom parables, at these parables in which Jesus tells all of these different stories and he's unpacking all of these different kingdom principles. He's holding it before us. He's holding it before us. He's teaching us about it. And then he's challenging us to get involved in it no matter what it takes. And today, we're going to look at what's become known as the parable of the sower. And what we're going to see as we look at this parable and at others is that this idea or this phrase, this kingdom of God, is really Jesus' favorite way of just telling you about his mission. And what's his mission? Because we said it. It's in the Lord's Prayer. The vision of the kingdom, the mission of Christ is thy kingdom come, thy will be done in where? On earth as it is in heaven. See, the vision of the kingdom is the vision of the total transformation of this sin-stained, sorrow-filled, mostly filthy, mostly broken world into a perfect place, into a joy-filled place, into a pure and unbroken place where God's will is done perfectly here, even as it is done in heaven. Richard Pratt says something I think is really profound. 
He says, guys, and he says it over and over again. It's like it's, it's his mantra. He says, heaven is not the goal. I mean, the goal of the kingdom is not all of us going to heaven someday. That's wonderful. I don't want to underplay that. That's part of the program. That's a great gift. But heaven is not the goal. It's the standard. It's what you and I, by the power of the Holy Spirit in accordance with the word of God and for the glory of Christ, are to break into this world. We are to be transformational. And that's the vision of Calvin, and that's, more importantly, the vision of Jesus. That's the vision that he must have comforted that cold-blooded, traumatized, never-going-to-be-quite-the-same-young-lady-with-on-that-night. And that's the vision that Jesus calls us to. And he does it story by story, parable by parable, today's parable being the parable of the sower. And it takes place, Jesus tells this story, on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, probably on the northern tip, somewhere up by Capernaum is my guess, because that's sort of where he was headquartered. That's where Peter's house was. That's where Jesus stayed and lived and worked out of as he did his ministry in the Galilee region. And it takes place in front of a great crowd. I mean, you're going to see that there are a ton of people who have come out to hear Jesus and to see Jesus. And there's been a lot of people here today to see and hear Jesus too. And they went through a whole lot more. I mean, truthfully, you know, they didn't drive here in an air-conditioned or maybe today a heated car. They didn't do that. A lot of these folks walked miles. Some of them walked for days to hear Christ, to see Him. They didn't, you know, like when they got there, they didn't get a comfy seat. They stood. We'll see that too. And in all likelihood, they stood in the heat. I mean, there's no shade. There's no building. There's no air conditioning. There's none of these things. These guys went through great pains to see Christ. They went through great pains to hear Jesus far greater than any of us have done today. And yet I want to ask you something. Did they really see him? Did they really hear Jesus? And will we? Matthew says this, Matthew 13, verse 1, he says, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. So there it is. And great crowds, there they are, gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. You get the picture? I mean, the crowds are so gathering around Christ, they force him off the beach and into a boat. They really want to see him and hear him. Right? It says, and the whole crowd stood on the beach and Jesus told them many things in parables, which means he talked for a long time while they stood sweating on the beach. But it also means that there are a lot of lessons in this parable, but there's really one that I want you to see more than anything else. It says, And Jesus told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And so thus far we've got a sower. He's a farmer, okay, and he's sowing seed. That's pretty obvious. But what is the purpose of sowing seed? What is he hoping to accomplish by the sowing of seed? It's not just exercise. It's not calisthenics. He's not out there because he's just kind of, you know, having, hey, I'm going to go sow some seed because I don't have anything better to do. He wants to see a harvest. That's the whole point. That's why you sow seed. So Jesus says a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. It's kind of like the street. It's like you can imagine Federal Highway. They fell along the path, and, well, what happens to seeds that fall on the street? They don't grow, do they? The birds get lunch, he says, and the birds came and devoured them. Why? 
because the street is not a real conducive place for growth. There's a problem, and the problem is with the soil. Jesus goes on. He says, other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil. You hear the importance of soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. So there's this blast of growth, you know, but then it's not going to last. It's not going to be sustained. It's not going to live long enough to ever produce anything. Because he says, but when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. The soil is too shallow. The soil is the problem. Other seeds, says our Lord, fell among thorns. See, this is soil, but there's all these thorns. It's thorn-infested soil. My goodness. And the thorns grew up and choked them. So they grew, yeah, but they were so infested with weeds and with thorns that, again, no harvest. But then Jesus says this. He says, other seeds fell on what? It fell on good soil. And how do you know if it's good soil? You know because it produces a harvest. That's it. He says other seeds fell on good soil, and here's how you know, and they produced grain, see, some a hundredfold, which is stunning. Some 60, still stunning. Some 30, still like way impressive, okay? Now, what's the difference? It should be obvious at this point between the production of a harvest and the production of absolutely nothing. The difference is the soil. And then Jesus says something that is tied inextricably to this idea of good and bad soil. He says to these people, he who has ears, let him hear. Look, there are a lot of people walked a long way, all gathered around Jesus so much that he had to literally get in the boat to kind of back offshore so he could speak to these people, okay? And they all heard the story, and we've all heard the story. They had ears, we have ears. But the question is did they hear it? I mean, really. And do we? And how do you know? There's a harvest. It says that Matthew said, then some of the disciples came to Jesus and, and said to him, you know, why do you speak to these people in parables? That's a pretty good question, I think. And I'm not sure that you're going to like his answer, at least initially. You've got to follow it all the way through. And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. He's drawing a line between them and the crowd. He says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, of my mission, he's saying, of my vision of transformation. But to them it has not been given, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he who has will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, he says, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. He's saying, look, you can have eyes that see. You can go to the doctor, you can read the chart, it'll be really impressive. Maybe it's 2015. And still not see him. And you can have ears that work perfectly. and still not hear him. And as we're going to see in a second, it all has to do with the soil of your heart. I mean, is it like Federal Highway? Is it stone? Is it shallow? Is it infested with weeds, thorns? Or is it good soil? And a little clue, here's how you know. Look for growth. Look for harvest. 
Jesus says, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and then hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then he reaches into the book of Isaiah, a book that these guys knew well, and he grabs out like this judgment section. So this is fairly severe language that he's going to use now, and he uses it of these folks who are unseeing and unhearing, if you will. He says, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive for these people's eyes. No, it's not their eyes. Their eyes is not the problem. All right, well, then he must have said for this, this people's ears. No, their hearing's fine. For this people's heart. See, the problem is the reception of the message, not by the eyes or the ears, but by the soil of their heart. He said this people's heart has grown dull to the things of God, to the word of God, to the kingdom of God, to the vision of God. And with their ears, they can barely hear, and their eyes, and this is important, they have closed. So that's language of intentionality. He's saying they have chosen to close their eyes. They have chosen to stop up their ears. They have chosen a hard heart, a fruitless heart. And you're like, well, that's weird because some of them walk two days to get to see them. I mean, look, they did a lot more than we would. If you had to come to church and stand on the beach while I was in a little boat, wouldn't that be odd? I mean, it's odd enough I sit on a stool. But really, I mean, in the sun blazing down on you, Middle East is even hotter than Fort Lauderdale. And when it's cold, it's even colder. Braving the elements without a chair, no air conditioning, no shade, no bathrooms. No, I mean, it's like, wow, these guys really wanted to see Jesus. They were way interested in Jesus, and here's why. They were interested in Jesus for what Jesus could do for them. Heal my son. Look, I would walk a lot more than two days for that. Wouldn't you? Fix my marriage. Okay, I'd walk a lot more than two days for that too. Hey, I'm trying to make a big decision here. A little wisdom would be really helpful, particularly from God in the flesh. Help me out here, Jesus. Can he do those things? Does he do those things? Of course. But the point is, they're not bringing anything to the table. They're not coming to Christ as the Son of God and bowing their life before him and saying, here, take me, all of me as a living sacrifice because I am so captured by the total transformation of the world. And I am so indebted and in love with this one who gave himself to make me clean and to set me free. That's the difference. These guys are not going to give. These guys are not going to serve. They're not going to go you know, plant a church and preach the gospel, and they're darn sure not going to sign up for Calvin Seminary. What about you? Jesus says, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. It says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive, for this people's heart, that's the problem, has grown dull. It's not being penetrated. There's no good soil. And with their ears, they can barely hear, and their eyes, they have closed. Lest, look at this, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would do what for them? I would heal them. 
That's what He does for those of us who turn. For those of us who come. And then He looks at His guys and says, but you guys are different. He says, but blessed are your eyes for they see. And your ears for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And then He brings it all together. He's going to explain the parable. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. He says, when anyone hears the what? Word of the kingdom, time out. What is the seed the sower is sowing on the soils that he's described in the story? It's the message of the kingdom of God. It's the mission of Jesus. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. He's saying the word is sown, but it's sown upon federal highway. It's lunch for the birds. It never penetrates. It never grows. It never has a chance. For the heart is too hard. The soil is frankly absent. He says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. You know, And, and we've seen this, and, and, and many of us, I mean, we've done this. It's like, wow, I'm a believer. You know, woo! You know, and the excitement lasts about three weeks, three months, maybe three years. But at some point, that's just not jiving with you anymore, you know, I mean, for whatever reason. And it's as though the kingdom, it's as though Jesus never existed. He says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, and yet he has no root in himself. See, the soil is too shallow, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, things get tough. Life gets upside down. Maybe God's disappointed you, quote, unquote. He falls away. So there's a short burst of growth, but, but then it's over. As for what was sown among the thorns, Jesus says, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfaithful. They're interested in Jesus, but just not quite as much as they're interested in something or someone else. And that something or someone else, that greater allegiance prevents any harvest. And then Jesus says, as for what was sown on good soil... He says, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. And how do you know that he hears the word and understands it? Because he can regurgitate it. He can pass the quiz that you give him after you, you know, transfer the information. No. You know because he indeed, Jesus says, bears fruit. The message of the kingdom of God is like a seed. And when a seed is planted in good soil and properly tended, what happens to that seed? It transforms. It changes everything. God is sowing the seed of the vision and the message of His kingdom into the soil of our hearts and He's looking for produce. We should be transformed by it and then we should be agents of transformation. It should begin to transform through us, our little worlds. It should transform our family. That's how it should work. It should begin to transform our offices, our community of friends, our classrooms, our ball teams, our whatever. And then together as we gather in the aggregate, it should begin to transform the city. Things should be changing as the heaven breaks into earth through us. 
Jesus says, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, and here's the proof. Indeed, he indeed bears fruit and yields a harvest, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Why did these guys sign up for Calvin Seminary? Why in the world would their parents support such a thing? I mean, why would any woman marry anybody who's enrolled in that seminary? You know, it's going to be short, isn't it? Or let their husband do it. It's because the word of the kingdom of God found good soil in their hearts and transformed them into a people who actually believed that by serving, that by giving, that by going, that by preaching, that by speaking, that by living out the kingdom of God, they could be a part of transforming this sin-stained, sorrow-filled, frankly pretty filthy, pretty broken world into a perfect place. Into a place where God's word and God's will is done here, even as it is done in heaven. Heaven is not the goal. Heaven is the standard the standard. So that's the vision of Jesus, and that's the vision of Calvin. And that's the vision that Christ calls us to as well. Story by story and parable by parable. And the question is, has that vision captured you? Has it found good soil in your heart? And how do you know? Harvest, growth, produce. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kingdom, for the vision of a place that is unbroken, and for the certainty that we have as your people that that vision will become a complete and total reality upon the return of your Son. For that, Lord, we praise you. We thank you that you... Give us a vision for life that transcends the mundane, that gives meaning to all that we do if we're plugged into it. And Lord, I pray that you would challenge us as to the soils of our heart, that you would, by your Spirit, give us grace to be fruitful people for your kingdom, that we might be transforming agents in our families and businesses and ball teams and schools and community, and then through this church, in this city, in this year. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.